and by it we live. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray now that especially through the proclamation of your word that our souls would be fed, our faith strengthened, that we'd be renewed in obedience. And Lord, that we truly would come to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our greatest treasure and the wellspring for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. I think many of us have learned uh, to look kind of with a healthy skepticism upon some of the claims and promises that are sometimes made and to say, well, I think that one is a little too good to be true. Or that's rather unbelievable. So whether it is uh, the... Uh, empty promises of a politician or of a salesperson that is uh, selling us on their product as the answer to all of life's woes, or uh, just perhaps even somebody else in uh, conversation telling us what they think uh, is going to happen or what the future is going to be like, we sometimes say, well, that's a little too good to be true. Well, I wonder if some of us sometimes think the same thing about the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Is this simply too good to be true? I think that's what Karl Marx uh, thought. He called religion the opiate of the masses. Uh, Religion, well, religion kept people content in their miserable, degraded working class conditions by holding out to them this rather unbelievable promise of a future, better world. It's a kind of fantasy land. It's a dream. Well, we'd all wish that there would be a world like this someday, but it has no place in reality. And I wonder, have you been tempted to think that? Has... Seeds of doubt been planted in your heart that say, this sounds nice, but I'm not really sure that it's going to happen. Maybe at death, well, I just cease to exist, and there's no afterlife at all. Well, if you've had such doubts, they aren't unique to you. Uh, Many people have them. You ought not to be ashamed if you have doubts like that. But at the same time, it ought to be your desire not to remain in a questioning state, but to have those doubts answered. Let me just just say this at this point. I I meet with people and talk with them, as as many of you do, about about the faith. And sometimes I'll meet with people and they'll say, well, I'm just questioning right now. I have doubts. And again, that's, that's okay, but then you address them. And you say, well, what are some of the specific doubts that you have? And sometimes they, they might list them, sometimes they don't. And I say, well, how long have you been having these? And sometimes they'll say, for years. And you ask the question, well, what are you doing about the doubts? And they say, well, not, what do you mean what I'm doing, doing about them? I'm doing nothing at all. Well, dear friends, when we doubt, sometimes we do, We ought to seek to have those doubts answered. 
to ask good questions, to seek out answers in God's word, to cry out to the Lord in prayer, Lord, please assure my faith. Lord, settle my heart on uh, your promises. Seek answers for uh, these things. Really, I think that's what the Lord Jesus is doing in the passage that's before us. In verses 1 through 4 that we saw last week, he made this absolutely extraordinary promise of a new heavens and a new earth that was going to be established at his coming. But in our passage today, I think he comes to us and he seeks to reassure us that these things which he has said really are true. He says to our weak faith, as it were, verse 5, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord Jesus saying to us, the things that I have just said to you, they are trustworthy, that is, they are reliable, you can count on them, I'm not deceiving you. And they are true. That is, these things are in accord with reality. And the Lord Jesus comes to us amidst our doubts and our questioning faith. And he speaks to us and he says, I want your doubts to be answered. I want your faith to be assured. Yes, you can believe the things that I have spoken. And so I want that to be our theme as we open up these four verses today. This idea of a word that is trustworthy and true. So three questions that we're going to ask as we open up these verses. First of all, we're going to ask the question out of verse 5, what is it that is trustworthy and true? Then secondly, uh, out of uh, verses 5 and 6, how can we know? that it is trustworthy and true. And then thirdly, from verses 6 through 8, who can receive assurance that this is trustworthy and true? So what is it that is trustworthy and true? How can we know it is trustworthy and true? And who can receive assurance that this is trustworthy and true? Those three points, first of all, uh, the question, what is it that is trustworthy and true? What is the Lord Jesus saying to us? Write this down. These words, well, what words are they that are trustworthy and true? Well, we could say in its broadest spectrum, it's everything that has been in the book of Revelation. I think more particularly, though, it's those things that have just been said in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 21. You might recall from last week, those of you that were here, what extraordinary promises these, these are. He's told us that upon his return, after that final judgment, he is making for us a new heaven and a new earth, a renewed habitation, a restored creation for us to live in. And in that new habitation, there is going to be a fully redeemed church. A holy city, New Jerusalem, the redeemed church of God in all of its fullness, with no one missing, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And we, as a fully redeemed church, then are going to have a consummated relationship with God. To know Him 
in a degree that we've never known him before as our God, us being his people, his dwelling place now in the very midst of his people. And as he dwells in the midst of his people, uh, we will uh, then experience the end of every misery that has uh, um, uh, beguiled us here uh, on, in, in this world. There shall be no more death, no more mourning, no crying, no pain. Every tear from our eyes wiped away in that place as we dwell in the midst of our God. What an extraordinary promise uh, this is. And the Lord Jesus is saying to us, these things are trustworthy and true. But then he goes on in verse 5 to kind of summarize, I think, in all that he said there in verses 1 through 4 when he says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the promise. Now, we made the point last week that he doesn't say there, I am making all new things, as if God were discarding his entire first creation and said, well, that was a, that was a failed attempt. Uh, let's create something entirely different instead. No, rather, God is renewing, redeeming, restoring that which had been so affected by human sin. The Lord says, indeed, behold, I am doing this. I am making all things new. Now, there's a real sense in which the Lord has already begun doing this before the new heavens and the new earth, hasn't he? He's established for us a new covenant in Christ, Jeremiah 31. He gives his people at regeneration a new nature so that we are no longer under sin's dominion, but rather have been cleansed and can do those things which please God. The Lord opens up a new and living way through Jesus Christ for us to draw near to the Father. We are brought into a a new family, the family of God. We have a new reconciled relationship with the living God. The Lord does new things. And you know, this promise, by the way, of a God who is making all things new gives extraordinary meaning to a life that is often filled with repetition and despair. You know, when you ask somebody, well, how are things going? One of the answers that you sometimes get is, well, same old, same old, right? And what do they mean by that? Well, they mean this life is just so repetitious, right? Every 24 hours, you do the same stuff again and again and again. You wake up, you brush your teeth, you get your meals for that day. You, you have many of the same routines. You, you see many of the same people. You wear the same clothes. You, you, you get in the same car. You go to the same places. You, you go through your whole day, and once again, you fall asleep only to wake up the next day and do it again, right? And then the day after that, you, well, and then you go through whole seasons that are the same, right? It's, it's fall, and then winter, and then spring, and then summer, and then it just Keeps going again, right? Another fall, another winter, another spring, another summer, another Christmas, another Easter, another... You know, we, just, we just go through the same repetition, except for the fact that with every pass through, we get a little bit older. 
And we're hurtling our way towards that time of our death when that repetition is going to to stop. Well, you say that's a rather kind of uh, despairing view on life, isn't it? And that's why people have midlife crises, right? Because they kind of, the reality hits them. Is this all that there is? This despair, this, this repetition. And it's into this world that the Lord Jesus comes and says, Behold, I am making all things new. In the midst of this repetition of life, I'm going to redeem you and make you into a new creation. And I'm going to be conforming you under the image of my son. I'm going to be working my good purposes in you. I'm going to be building my church. The Lord promises to do these new things in the midst of this fallen existence. And that gives us extraordinary, extraordinary hope. He is doing something that is new and that is lasting amidst this present world. And so, when at his return, Jesus comes and perfectly restores this creation, bringing a new heavens and a new earth, he is actually bringing to consummation that work which was already begun in this world. He is now making all things new, and so it ought not to surprise us that at his coming, Jesus is saying, I am going to finish that which I began. I'm going to bring to consummation this wonderful new creation which I have accomplished, this new work which I am doing. Behold, I am making all things new. This is why we sing in that wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, uh, let us be. And so, amidst this world, we have this promise that the Lord is doing this new thing. Ultimately, a new thing at the creation of that new heavens and new earth, the restored creation, a fully redeemed church of God with God himself dwelling amidst us. This is the promise. This is the thing that we are told is trustworthy and true. Behold, I am making all things new. But now secondly, I want us to ask the question then, well, how can we know that this is trustworthy and true? Okay. That's, that's what is trustworthy and true. He is doing this new work, this redeeming work. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth is there. But how can we be sure that this is trustworthy and true? Well, the trustworthiness of God's promises rests on the character of the one who makes them. And we have a reference here uh, to the Lord. And I think especially it, the reference is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have a very similar description uh, to verses 5 and 6 back in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, when after a uh, symbolic description of the reigning Lord Jesus John writes, Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, that is, the ascended Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That was, that was at the beginning of John's revelation. Now, at the end of John's revelation, it is a similar description that is given of the Lord Jesus and the assurance that he is to write these things down, for they are true. But we also have a similar description of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. And there we have the promise, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so it is none other, clearly, than the Lord Jesus himself who is speaking to us here in Revelation 21. And he is speaking to us directly. And and a number of things describe him here in Revelation 21. The first thing that we're told is that he is seated on a throne. And so the one who speaks to us is the one who is on a throne. And this is the throne of judgment. It is the throne of absolute sovereignty. It reminds us that the one who is in control of this universe is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the exalted and the living one. It is the one who is seated on the very throne of the universe that gives us this promise. But then he goes on to describe himself in verse 6 when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are uh, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The idea is, is that he is the first and the last. He is, as Colossians says, before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created through him. He is at the beginning of everything. But he is not only at its beginning, he is at its end as well. Even as all things were created through him, he then brings all things to their intended purpose. And similarly, in our salvation, he is the one who initiates our salvation, choosing to come as the incarnate one, to live and to die for us. He dies the death that we deserve atoning for our sins. He is raised to new life. And now as the resurrected one, the living one, he brings that salvation to its completion as well. He applies from his ascended place in heaven the fruit of his redeeming work to us and he promises to complete that work to its very end until his uh, coming again. And so... Who is it that's speaking to us? Well, it's the one who is seated on a throne. He's the one who is in himself the beginning of all things and the end of all things. But notice as well that he is the one who says there, it is done. It is done. That is, this one uh, 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 speaks of these things as they have as if they had already been accomplished what he has determined will surely take place and so this 
powerful, ascended, victorious, sovereign Lord Jesus now comes to us and he speaks to us. You know, we read of him speaking directly in chapter 1, but everything else in Revelation was received by John in visions or through the words of angels. Now, they were, those also were trustworthy and true. But here, once again, we come to Revelation 21, and the Lord Jesus instructs us personally again. And he comes to you to reassure your doubting faith. And he says, yes, I, the one who's seated on the throne, who is the first and the last, the one who can already say it is done, I am telling you personally, everything that I have said here is trustworthy and it is true. So, dear friends, when you are doubted, when you are tempted to doubt the reality of this new creation, is this new heavens and new earth too good to be true after all? Remember that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died and is risen again from the dead, who comes to you and says, It is true. Every bit of it is true. And so to believe in the second coming and to believe in the new heavens and new earth is not just to believe a kind of detached, isolated doctrine, but it is to trust the words of your Savior. That's what it is. To believe in his return and to believe in the new heavens and new earth is to say, Jesus, I believe you when you speak. You died for me. You rose from that grave. And now you are the one who is telling me all of this is trustworthy and true. You will bring this work to its end. What my Jesus has said he will do. I'm so thankful for assurance like that. I simply ask you, can you believe your Lord Jesus when he speaks to you? Don't call him a liar. Don't say that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't say that he's, he's putting into our heads dreams that will never take place. No, the one who really lived, really died, really rose again, now says to you, I am coming again. New heavens, new earth. Behold, I am making all things new. Write it down. It's trustworthy and true. So friends, that is how you and I can believe that these things are trustworthy and true. It is because of who this word comes from. The Lord Jesus speaks to us this truth. But now third and finally, I want us to ask the question, who can receive assurance that this is trustworthy and true? In other words, I mean, all of us ought to believe that these things are trustworthy and true. But, but for whom are these words spoken? Who will receive uh, the, the fruition, the, 
the glories of the things of which Jesus speaks? And the answer is, it is those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Those who are trusting in Jesus. Those who are saved by his redeeming work. Now, he's going to describe these people for us in three different ways. Two of them positive, saying who they are, and one of them negative, saying who they are not. Okay? So who receives this assurance from the Lord Jesus? Well, the first thing, the first descriptive word that we're given, it is, it is those who are thirsty who receive this assurance. You see that? Verse 6, to the thirsty, I will, that strong emphatic uh, uh, intention, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I wonder if any of you have ever really been thirsty. Children, have you ever really, really been thirsty? You're parched. What happens when you're really thirsty? Well, you can't think of anything else but getting something to drink, right? You want some water or anything to put upon your lips to satisfy your thirst. And he's saying here, this is true also of my people. Not that we're thirsty in a physical way, but rather that my people are spiritually thirsty. That is, when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, what he does is he works in us a deep spiritual thirst. A thirst, on the one hand, to have my sins pardoned and my guilty conscience cleansed. Lord, I can't be satisfied until I know that my sins are no longer counted against me. And that I'm no longer a child of wrath, but that I've been pardoned by you. Similarly, there is a thirst for communion with God in prayer and in my daily walk. There's a thirst as well for the Word of God and for the truth of the Word of God. There's a thirst that, that is there in whom the Spirit works. And the promise here is that if you experience this kind of thirst and you come to Jesus Christ, that He will satisfy this thirst completely. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We don't purchase this, but rather it is given to us freely by the Lord Jesus Christ, because of, of what He has done. And it's a thirst that can be satisfied nowhere else in the world. Nowhere else in the world will you receive the forgiveness of sins. There's nowhere else in the world that you can find communion with God but in Him. Isaiah 55 and verse 1 speaks of this extraordinary gospel promise when it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying uh, to each one of us. Oh, for you who are thirsty, let me assure you of this. The promise stands. Let me tell you, he says, oh, you who are thirsty, 
you will, I will give to you from the spring of the water of life without payment. Are you thirsty today? Well, we find in Jesus Christ the promise that that thirst forever will be satisfied with him. Now, but especially in glory. There's a second description that's given of those who receive this assurance. And the second description is that they are considered those who conquer. Did you see that in verse 7? The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, This uh, clues us in that the Christian life is uh, often a fight. Uh, The scriptures say it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of, of God. That to be a Christian is to experience temptations arising from our own sinful nature. It's to experience the assaults of Satan against us. It is to experience the frowns and the persecution of an unbelieving world. And the Bible calls each one who belongs to Jesus Christ to nonetheless persevere and endure in the faith, and in doing this to conquer. Not in our own strength, but rather by the Spirit's assisting power and for the glory of God. You may recall even in Revelation 2 and 3, all the letters to the seven churches, each one of them ending, speaking to the one who conquers. There is a promise that is made, and it reminds us of the call in our Christian lives to press on, to not give up, to endure, to overcome temptation, to rely on the Lord in the midst of difficulty, to to, to seek to uh, uh, persevere in the faith. The promise is that to all who conquer in this way, then we are given this promise that we will have this heritage, that the Lord will be our God and that we will be his son that we will know what it is to be part of the Lord's family, even as we never have before. In other words, all that you give up for the cause of Christ in this world will be repaid and then some in that world to come. He will be our God. We will be his his son. This teaches us that the truth of adoption uh, that the blessings of our of, of, of our adoption are blessings which we experience now, but there are some blessings of it which we haven't yet experienced in full. Beloved, even now you are children of God, but it has not yet appeared what you shall be. 1 John 3, right? We are now children of God, but this is saying that All of the blessings, the full, consummated blessings of our adoption yet await us in glory. When we shall know the the sweetness of God as our, our Father and us as His children and us receiving from His hand every good gift, His inheritance, ours in its fullness, all of that yet awaits. And it comes to those who conquer. In his name. Are we those who persevere, who endure in this Christian life uh, for his uh, glory? He assures us here that this heritage uh, will, be, will be ours. And so those are two descriptions. Those who thirst 
those who conquer receive amazing promises which the Lord himself speaks to us. But now thirdly, there's then a negative description. That is, who receives these assurances of the glories of the new heavens and new earth? He now says, well, it is not those whose lives are characterized by unrepentant sin. Verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will not be in glory in the new heavens and new earth, but rather their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So even as he assures us, here he also warns us. Now he's not saying that believers are completely free from all sins. Or that believers never commit any of these sins that he's speaking of here. The Bible makes it clear that the Lord has come into this world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance that 1 John 1.7, that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us as believers from all sin. So he's not saying that once you're a believer, you never sin, or if you've ever sinned once in any of these ways, well, you are going to be cast out of the glories of, of heaven. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is this. He is saying that all who are saved by Jesus Christ are also delivered from sin's dominion over our lives so that you and I are then enabled by his grace to renounce these sins and to live lives of repentance and obedience to God. So that we do sin, but when we sin we repent. That the desire of our hearts is to walk in obedience to him and to love the Lord Jesus above all else. And so 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11 puts it this way when it says, uh, uh, verse, verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you, do you see what it's saying there? It's saying that yes, these things once characterized the lives of those who are Christians. And it's saying once we become Christians, not that we never sin again, but rather that our lives are not defined and identified by these sins any longer. That we are new creatures in uh, Jesus Christ, seeking to walk obediently to him. So what an assurance this is. It, it's, it keeps us from a kind of a presumption, uh, thinking that, well, all people are going to get to go to heaven when they die. No, this makes it clear. 
to live your life in disobedience to God, unrepentant of your sin, not looking in faith to Jesus Christ, dear friends, you will not experience those glories of the age to come, but rather it is an awful end that awaits a portion in the lake, the same lake that that was reserved for the devil and his angels, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur under the wrath of God for eternity which is the second death. Oh, how this, might, how this should cause us to hate all of these sins and to seek to turn from these sins and to make sure that our lives are not characterized by these sins, to plead by the Spirit that we would be delivered from these uh, sins and that we would walk with the, the Lord. And so, He is saying here, know this for certain, that those who are given over to sin and live merely for the pleasures of this world will not receive the heritage of glory, but will receive eternal condemnation. So, dear brothers and sisters, as we conclude today, what I want to call you today to to is to an assured faith in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in the new heavens and new earth. After giving us a description of what it's like, he knows our doubting frame, and he comes to us as a sovereign king, and he says, these things are trustworthy and true. Live by them. So this means that we ought to be living our lives, uh, not simply kind of hedging our bets. Well, maybe I ought to try to at least partly get my act together in case there's a final judgment after all. You know, living as much like the world as we can, but a little bit of Christianity just in case there's a final judgment. It means as well that you and I ought not to live in a state of indecision, forever being content to say, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, maybe these things are true, maybe they're not. None of us can be entirely sure, and I'm just going to be content to question things my whole life. Friends, to live in a state of indecision in our mind means that we live in a state of indecision in our living as well, trying to have one foot in the world and one foot with God. The Lord says you cannot serve two masters, you can't serve both me and Ma'am, in the things of this world, it's one or the other. Which treasure are you living for? So don't be content to live merely in a state of indecision, in a state of questioning, but rather can I call you today to hear afresh the voice of your Savior who says to you, Behold, I am making all things new. This is true. Can you believe when he says it is true? And then can you live your life wholeheartedly believing these things? Living your life sold out for Jesus Christ because the words that he says are trustworthy and true. Lord, we trust in you. These things are true. Help me now to live my life in such a way that it is for the glory of your name and it is with the expectation that to the one who is thirsty I will receive from that spring of the water of life for the one who conquers. 
I will receive the heritage as your son forever and ever. Lord, help me to live in light of that reality. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you come to us in all of our weakness and in all of our doubts, and you assure us that indeed these things are trustworthy and true. We pray today, O Lord, for the grace to believe it, to believe your word with all of our hearts, and to live by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, let's sing now. We're going to sing. It's hymn number 486. 486. This is a hymn that was written by uh, John Newton, the same a writer who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, but it's a hymn uh, that caught, that, that, uh, in which we uh, uh, tell ourselves, as it were, to rejoice in the Lord and to know that the hope that's built upon his word shall ne'er be overthrown. Hymn 486. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.